One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This week, we sit down with Trevor who was tried and convicted of murder along with his brother Joshua when Trevor was just 14 and Joshua was 18. Trevor served almost 18 years of a 25-year sentence when he was released under surprising circumstances, while Joshua is still incarcerated. During our interview, Trevor walks us through his early childhood years, what life was like on the inside, his thoughts on accountability, and the advocacy work he now does for youth offenders. This is Crime and Punishment, Part 1. I feel like I will forever be attempting to repay a debt. I don't believe I get to be redeemed. I don't get to undo what I've done. And it doesn't matter if I save 10 million people tomorrow. Those choices are there. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes, and together we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, places, and certain details, including relationships, have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. Though we realize that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we hope you'll join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Good morning. Good morning. And we have Detective Dave. Great to be here. Great to have you. And we're very pleased to welcome a new guest to the podcast, Trevor Walraven. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So, Trevor, we don't usually use our guests' full names, but you and your story are quite well known. So why don't you just start from the beginning? Well, thank you. Typically, I acknowledge that I grew up in Southern Oregon. And I have a brother, half-brother, who's four and a half years older than I am. Parents moved from L.A. to get away from the big city. And so I grew up on 52 acres of forest land, surrounded predominantly by BLM. And what's BLM? Bureau of Land Management. So it's government property. Public lands. Okay. Is it just like living on parkland? 
No, because we own the property that we lived on, but everything surrounding it was very forested and, and mountainous. Oh, I see. It's quite good to be surrounded by BLM land. Why is that? Because it's usable land. You own the 52 acres that you live on, but you can go out and go out on BLM land and four-wheel and camp. We did grow up with motorcycles and four-wheelers and three-wheelers and dirt bikes, and we certainly drove on their land. There's a lot of logging roads around that area as well, um, so those roads were also accessible. And homeschooled for the majority of my early years. When my brother got to the age of wanting to kind of have a peer group because we grew up so remotely, he wanted to go to high school, play sports, relationships with girls, and not wanting to be left at home. I, you know, very much followed that same lead and, and started going to school very similar time. And as a result of that, I remember my parents, specifically my dad, saying that the first people that accept you are likely the people that you don't want to hang out with and be accepted by. Interesting. Why is that? You know, I think there is some belief, I would say, that those who are most welcoming of new folks want to build their numbers. Um, and that's certainly been true of the prison environment uh, that I've experienced. But beyond that, um, I think just the idea of earning your place and also being mindful of who you associate with was something that my dad recognized and us having grown up the way we did being prone to wanting acceptance by a peer group because we hadn't really had that experience. So you were vulnerable. He was, he said, just be cautious of your vulnerability, basically. Yeah. Um, and certainly didn't articulate it that precisely, but the general idea was put out there. And for me, I was going to hang out with people that were older than me because I was just more mature, at least in the way I conducted myself. I grew up predominantly around adults. So for a living, my parents were in the antique and collectible business. We didn't have a store or anything like that. We, so we traveled around mostly the Western U.S. and went to antique shows and we would help, you know, move people in and out. We grew up doing logging projects around the home, um, splitting firewood. So all kinds of things that built some level of maturity. And so for me, being 12 years old when I started going to school uh, and started associating with those individuals, I started doing the same kinds of things at a much younger age. So I used methamphetamines, for example, for the first time when I was 12, um, as well as smoked weed and drank and hallucinogens. Um, so by the time I was 13, I was a fairly regular user for being as young as I was. How do you hide something like that? I Like meth ravages you, I hear, quite quickly and pretty obviously. Yeah, and I would say that the meth today, from what I've heard and seen, is very different than it was back then. Not that it was good back then by any stretch of the imagination, but it didn't ravage you, I think, in the same ways as quickly as it does nowadays. And again, that's just kind of from what I've seen, not personal experience in, in the latter part of my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I know the first time that I ever got high when I was 12, my dad knew it and he didn't say anything to me. Um, but he said something to my brother and kind of looked at my brother, recognizing that I looked up to my brother in a lot of ways and recognizing that Really, he was going to be the one to keep his eyes on me more so than my parents. Um, he basically, you know, told my brother that he needed to kind of look after me and, and it was important that keep me safe and those kinds of things. And what's your brother's name? Joshua. And was your brother doing the same stuff? That's how you got into it? Yeah. And those are my choices. I mean, I wanted to be a part of that community. So I, I don't fault him or my parents um, for my choices throughout my life. I recognize how things transpired and reasons why I went down the road I did. Um, and I 
recognize those things through reflection in a lot of years. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't negate responsibility in any of this. Right. And, and Joshua is your half brother. Yep. And so your, the parents that you were growing up with, were they, are they both your mom and dad and Joshua's? Same mom, different dads. Got it. And my dad raised Josh since he was about two years old. For all intents and purposes, he was also Joshua's dad. Yes. Okay. Part of what that did is me being in that environment pretty quickly uh, and around individuals that were in their older teens and early 20s. There were several occasions where somebody would find out that they had a 13-year-old with them doing meth and they weren't okay with that, which I recognize is completely understandable nowadays. But back then that was rejection. And back then it was feeling ostracized and not accepted. Uh, And for me, that peer group was so important that I maintain a part of it. Um, And so in my mind at 14, the way I felt like I could maintain my relationships with those peer groups uh, was to gain the respect. And the way I figured I could do that was by instilling fear. That's incredibly emotionally sophisticated to figure that out at that young age. Well, and again, a lot of this is, is hindsight. Many of the things that I say today were not fully recognized back then, but looking at who I was and thinking about kind of how I developed in these different pieces in my life. Um, you know, had you asked me this stuff at 14 years old, I would have had no clue. You couldn't articulate it that way. Absolutely not. But nowadays, again, I've, I've thought a lot about all of these things. Uh, and as we societally typically do, you know, learn from history and, and not repeat those same choices. Um, so in, in my mind, part of the way I would do that was by having money and drugs and all of these kinds of things. Uh, and I decided that I was going to commit a robbery. And I, and again, at 14 years old, my mentality was that if I didn't have a witness after the fact, then I would be less likely to get caught. Um, so I ended up robbing and killing an innocent man who I'd never before met uh, when I was 14 years old. And was arrested shortly thereafter within about a week. And both my brother and I were taken into custody. Can we go back through the actual crime itself? I'm kind of interested in how you selected uh, your target, what kind of conversations you had with Joshua prior to that, how you set it up. Did you select a time to do it? Were you waiting for him to be alone? How in a 14-year-old's mind who is planning a robbery and with a thought in the back of their mind that there can't be any witnesses, how that evolution started, and then what happened at the crime scene. And were you nervous? Yes, I was nervous and scared would be probably the most accurate word. But I was also very full of this idea that I had to be, you know, macho and I had to, you know, I really glamorized the criminal lifestyle. I wanted to sell drugs. I wanted to be someone to contend with. I mean, that's what was attractive to me at that point in my life. Um, and so in conversations kind of leading up to this, and Josh was not there. He actually wasn't there at the crime scene. Um, he had gotten in a motorcycle accident the day before, uh, so was at home sleeping. And another piece, again, a lot of this is in reflection is, was a way for me to kind of be the big shot and like stand up and take care of something on my own. Um, and in conversations kind of leading up to that and talking about robbing someone, um, Josh was not supportive of going as far as I was. 
and I kind of gauged that and tempered my responses to him um, so that I wasn't so much glamorizing or saying this is what we have to do. You sort of downplayed yeah. the whole scenario to him. So you guys, your brother's at home because he's had an accident and you set off. Did you already know which place you were going to rob or did no, you just it, set out going, hey, I'll find a place and it's kind of spontaneous? It was very spontaneous. I actually walked to the bottom of the driveway and just waited for someone to drive by. It was There was no selection process whatsoever. Okay. And were you high? I was not. Wow. So walk us through. You're, you're standing at the bottom of the driveway, which uh, criminally is not a great idea. I was 14. To do it right in front of your house. <laughs> Uh, but let's just, let's just walk through this. What happens? This is a, a not very, um, publicly commuted road. Um, so it was, um, probably a hundred yards from my driveway, but very close to it. Uh, and I walked out in the middle of the road when I saw a vehicle approaching, uh, and kind of, you know, moved far enough not to get hit, but like waved my hand to say, you know, hey, can you stop type thing? Um, and gentleman stopped. I opened the door uh, and pulled out a gun and pointed at him uh, and told him that I wanted him to drive me somewhere and got in the vehicle uh, and directed him where to drive. And I, I didn't have, you know, I really didn't have a plan or a spot or anything else. It was just like, drive for a while and then okay here's a road that i know this road so turn up this road it's an old logging road and continue to drive until okay you know here's a good spot go ahead and stop get out of the vehicle so very spontaneous if you will and not nearly as pre-planned as one might think what kind of things was your victim saying to you what's the conversation in the car on the way up this logging road sure it was very minimal um i was telling him that I wasn't going to hurt him, um, that I just needed to be dropped off somewhere. I just needed to get someplace so people would meet me. Um, and I, I believe he said, you know, something to the effect of, just please don't hurt me. I'll take you wherever you need to go. Those kinds of things. Trevor, what was the victim's name? I would prefer not to say out of respect for the family. I, I get that. I understand that. How old was he? He was in his 60s, his early 60s. So he, interesting that you were menacing enough that he felt like you were most definitely the alpha. Yes, you had the gun, but you're also 14. So he also might have thought, fuck this kid, I can totally overpower him and just sort of elbow you and knock the gun out of your hand. I mean, any number of things could have happened, but they didn't. Yeah. And he did, like, initially, when he saw the gun, like, he reached for me initially, and, like, I, you know, I, I backed up a little bit, and, hey, hey, and then he, like, okay, you know, I think probably recognized that there was a gun, and, okay, I'm just going to focus ahead and comply. Right. Where did you get the gun? I got it from the family. It was actually my brother's that was given to him several years before, but we grew up on, you know, we had a skeet, um skeet throwing machine i don't know what it's called what is that clay pigeons clay pigeons shotguns that kind of stuff yeah and was raised you know around guns throughout our life i had a chipmunk was i believe my first gun a 22 chipmunk and pellet guns and revolvers and that was just kind of part of that environment um you're competent with a handgun 
it wasn't a, oh shit, what is this? You knew how to handle it. Sure. Yeah. So you drive up this logging road that you're familiar with and you get him to, st- does it have a dead end or something? No, it goes for hundreds of miles. I mean, those logging roads all interconnect and go all over the place. Um, and they all kind of do out there in, in those areas. And what time of day are we talking? It was middle of the day. And so you basically drive until you figure we're well out of sight, out of nobody could hear anything. Mm-hmm. And then you make him get out of the car? Yes, I instructed him to get out of the vehicle. Um, and we both headed to the front of the vehicle. And I was absolutely shaking um, and scared. Uh, and it was also very surreal. And I was numb in a lot of ways. Um, but when we got to the front of the vehicle, I raised the gun to point at him. And he bent down at the waist. And I pulled the trigger. And that was it. He bent over, like, to like touch to his duck, toes? Like to duck out. Ah. Uh, and did you shoot him in the head? I did. And and what did you do after that? He fell backwards. We were face-to-face a little more than the width of a vehicle. And so I would imagine on impact pushed him back. And I walked up and, like, nudged him because I didn't... Again, it was all very surreal. Only having seen that stuff in movies, if you will... So I went through his pockets and took what I found and drug him over to the side of the road and rolled him down the hill a little bit and covered it with some brush and left. As you're telling that right now, what kind of emotions are going through you as you recall that scene? Tremendous amount of shame. And a a deep level of responsibility in a lot of different ways. Um, every ounce of regret that one can muster. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break-in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24/7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is Simply Safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, 
Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey Small Town fam, it's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are, what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty free and it's the first and only carbon neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it.
So you've stowed the body away, hoping to conceal it. And what are your next steps? I get in the vehicle and go home. And when you show up, it's just your brother at home? Correct. And does he have a, where'd you get that kind of look on his face? He does, and he was groggy because he had, like, I woke him up when I got home. And I think there was definitely a level of disbelief at first, but also a level of, like, shit. You just, you know, you go with it. This is my little brother. I don't necessarily know what to believe, but we're going to move forward. You said before that it was about a week before you were arrested. What did you do during that week? So ended up going on a date actually that night with the man's money and his vehicle. How much money? $100. And there was some change, but 520s. And went on a date and visited people, tried to sell the vehicle to get money, used drugs, and came back. Came back on the 31st of July. So it was several days, 26th, 27th to 31st. We were arrested August 1st of 1998. When we got home, our parents had been on a trip, an antique trip. So they got back and heard that we were being looked for. We got back and heard that we were being looked for in connection with the vehicle and a missing person. And I quickly came up with a lie as to how the vehicle had been attained. And I actually came up with that lie before coming back and finding out that we were being looked for. But we went into the police station and told a lie about how it had been given to us and something that very quickly, you know, unspun with detectives working with, you know, a 14-year-old brain and obviously not a very well put together lie. And we ended up being arrested uh, the morning of August 1st, 1998. You basically turn yourself into the police, mm -hmm. and they interview you. Do you confess? No. What do you tell them? I tell them that I had gotten the vehicle from someone from California. And they obviously don't believe you? No. Do they find the victim? They do. How do they find the victim? Uh, by searching just continued search efforts that had been ongoing since he was reported missing. And when you heard that news, was there an oh shit moment? I mean, I heard the news as I was put in handcuffs. Oh, gotcha. At what point did you tell Joshua what actually occurred? I don't recall when like that real conversation happened initially. I remember when we were in Reedsport. Is that why you're on your joyride? Yeah. I had, again, very much in the criminal element, I had suggested that we rob a pizza delivery man. And I had suggested that in the presence of someone who became one of the state star witnesses against both me and my brother. And... I said something to the effect that I had done much worse than robbing someone, a pizza delivery man, and in fact had done so to get the vehicle. And, you know, I don't know if that was kind of a deeper, like, recognition for my brother that, you know, this is real. But one of the things that many people spoke to in the aftermath was how my brother and I were not getting along as well as we typically had. Like, we were short with each other, and there was obviously tension between us. He was not there when you killed this man. Why was he also arrested and charged for this felony? Yeah, so part of the idea was we were really tight. I and mean, we had been seen together in days preceding, and 
there was the belief that there was no way Josh would have not have been part of something that I did. I mean, we were just that close. And I think in a lot of ways, the jury in his trial kind of thought that I did it. And the jury in my trial kind of thought that he did it. Like you guys are a package deal. Wherever you went, he was there. Wherever he went, you would be right on his hip. Yep. A lot of leading up to that was like he had transportation before I did. So we would always be together in his truck. We were regularly with each other and around each other. And my friend group was all borrowed from his predominantly. Right. So my brother was charged with felony murder and I was charged with aggravated murder uh, and several counts of regular murder. What's the difference between felony murder and aggravated murder? Aggravated murder, there has to be aggravating circumstances. So essentially the commission of a crime and then in order to hide your identity or to conceal that the crime was committed, um, those are all aggravating circumstances. There's definitely a difference between kind of how you get to felony murder as opposed to how do you get to, to aggravated murder. It has more intent, I would say, because a lot of your felony murders are like someone goes in to rob a bank and you've got someone sitting in the car as the driver and therefore they know that a felony is being committed. And in the course of the bank robbery, someone dies and it wasn't planned to kill someone, but someone ended up getting killed. And now the individual sitting in the car are equally liable for felony murder because they knew that a felony was taking place. Right. This was 1998. And that meant that if there was a belief that someone was part of a felony, they were responsible for whatever the worst case scenario was. Were you afraid to go to prison or were you like, fuck that, I can take prison, I'm all right? No, I was scared to death. And how long did you serve in prison? Uh, Altogether, I served a little under 18 years. Do you see that moment when you killed that man when you fall asleep at night? I don't. I don't. Did you ever? Not not in the traditional way. Uh, And part of this is kind of jumping maybe ahead, if you will, but I didn't take responsibility for my actions for over a decade. And part of that was telling myself the story that I was innocent, that I hadn't done these things and pushing that stuff down as far and as deeply as I could. And this all happening kind of pretty quickly, also then being put into an environment at 14 years old where I'm incarcerated and being put into adult county jail at 16, also incarcerated and recognizing that these are not spaces to be vulnerable. And so a good portion of my life, I pushed that stuff aside as much as I could. And I was also, I mean, there were times throughout my incarceration in my early years specifically where I still glamorized the criminal lifestyle and I still looked up to that. And I tried to walk this double line, if you will, where I I didn't have any problems to speak of. I followed the rules and everything like that while I was incarcerated. But I also knew these things were real about myself, but I was trying to tell myself this story. No, in many ways, no different than the story I told myself that I needed to fit in and I needed an individual's acceptance. The same kind of story I would tell myself, you know, you're innocent, you didn't do this. Thinking in very young mind, but if you have to take a lie detector, like you have to convince yourself. And I never took a lie detector. But again, being young and incarcerated in those settings, vulnerability was not, an appropriate reaction. At least that was my belief. When it comes to your brother's case, I imagine there's uh, plenty of controversy about uh, whether or not he could be believed. 
if he was there, if he wasn't present, because he's in prison for murder. And, and you're contending that he wasn't there. I imagine the detective who investigated this case or the team of detectives still are convinced that your brother was there. Yeah, and they very may well be. I think the, the, the two biggest pieces that they kind of stood on was that we were always together, and so he had to have been there. And the other piece was that they didn't feel like I could have done it, like physically by myself, like I could have moved a body, those kinds of things. They didn't feel like I was capable of doing that. To the best of my knowledge, those are what they stand on to say that he had to have been there. There's no physical evidence tying him to this scene on the logging road. No. Of course, he's in the car that was stolen. So there's going to be evidence that he's there. He was seen in it. You guys are together in the immediate aftermath of all this for days on kind of a joy ride around Central Oregon and the coast. Yeah. Where'd the gun go? It's just, I don't know where it went. Um, Did you throw it away? So when I got home, I'm not 100% where I put it. I don't know if I put it back in a cabinet. I don't know. Like, I threw the keys at one point away somewhere, and I don't remember. The car keys? Yes. Oh. But that was when I came back. So, I actually don't know what happened to the gun. It was never found. Oh. Um, but I don't, I don't know what happened to it. I mean, I know it's gone, but I don't know what happened to it. I mean, it's a long time ago, and so some things I remember clear as day, and other things I don't. And sometimes I know throughout my time I've looked at, like, the record in terms of who said what when or what day something happened. And I'm not here to dispute it, but I also don't remember that that's when it happened because for whatever reason, some things stick with you and some things don't. Over the years, I've looked back at trial transcripts and I've looked back at police reports and they're like, there's things that I know didn't happen that way. And there's other things that I don't dispute that happened that way, but I don't remember them. And so, you know, for me, part of what I, I kind of chalk things up to, if you will, is, is partly a lot of time having passed, partly wanting to forget a lot of these pieces and actively trying to forget many of these pieces for good portions of my life. Um, and also wanting to kind of find that, that balance of the deepest level of transparency that I can, because, you know, again, getting back to the core of who I am today, I don't want to cause any more harm and I don't want to throw something out there that's untrue or misrepresent something. And that's, that's just how I operate. But you can understand how a detective or a prosecutor would have a big problem with that. Absolutely. And I lied about what happened to the gun early on. I said that it was, I said that it was stolen. That somebody stole it after the guy was shot? Before. I said that all of our weapons had been stolen prior to ah, the crime. I so see. there were no guns to Basically, he didn't have the capacity or the ability to shoot anybody because he didn't have any guns anyway. They had, they'd already been taken. You think about a 14-year-old mind trying to cover this crime up. How do you explain the coincidence of you having the vehicle? And that's what a 14-year-old mind is trying to navigate. How do I patch up all these holes and you just can't? Can't do it. Right. 
But you had quite a few guns in the house. Did you get rid of all of them? No. Oh, just the one that you don't know what happened to it. Yeah, so I got rid of another one before that um, for meth. But that was, yeah, that was beforehand. Did they serve a search warrant at your residence? Oh, yeah. Okay. Several, I think. So you get the full meal deal. I imagine this was huge news down there. Before the age of the internet and everything being on Twitter and, and everything like that, but a small community, this is going to send ripples through everything around there. Your brother's trial, do you recall how long the jury was out? I don't. What about yours? It wasn't that long. It was, I think, hours. Were you nervous while they were out? Did you think they might acquit me? You know, in some ways I would say, yeah. I had been telling myself this story. You know, there's there's a tremendous amount of circumstantial evidence in the case, but there wasn't a lot of straightforward, you know, like this is a guarantee. I, one of the things they said I remember was like the bullet could have been a 38, it could have been a 357, it could have been a nine millimeter. Like they didn't know what it was. So there was just a lot of testimony suggesting this or that, but no smoking gun, if you will. So looking back at that point in your life, your respect for the criminal culture, and you talked about a star witness against you and your brother, and then going through prison and and everything that goes along with anybody who cooperates with the police. How do you look back on that person nowadays and the fact that they testified against you? I, I recognize it, you know, for what it is, essentially, in that they weren't doing the wrong thing. My brother would have been out a long time ago had he testified against me, but he refused to do so. And I also recognize that the way in which you go through prison those kinds of things very much impact how you succeed or fail while you're incarcerated. And so, you know, I can't predict the future or past and changes, but how he would have developed had he testified against me, for example, and gone through prison, I would imagine is very different than who he is today. Who is he today? He remains my older brother. He's working on his master's degree. Uh, he received his bachelor's from the U of O in... Uh, May of last year. In prison? Correct. Yeah. He went to the University of Oregon for a short period of time prior to incarceration. And he runs the same maintenance department that I ran when I was there. And we worked together while we were both there at OSP. And he has done a lot of writing. He has reflected deeply, as have I, and harbors a great feeling of responsibility for my actions recognizing that he was the older brother and he was kind of tasked with looking after me and, and feeling a lot of responsibility that he introduced me to drugs and those kinds of things. Um, and recognizing, recognizing the harm that he's a part of as the result of my actions. And I don't, I don't place those things on him very much recognize that those were choices that I made. And I recognize that there were influences throughout my life and he was one of them, but it, it's not his fault for how I responded to influences and how I interpreted things. Um, we learn differently, he, he and I, as does everyone. 
And so the way that I kind of processed and interpreted things, he could not have guessed at my outcome. When is he due to get out? August of 2023. So he had a flat 25-year sentence. I see. Okay. That's the prescribed Measure 11 sentence for murder. Correct. 25 is the standard, and then if there's aggravating circumstances, you can get time tacked onto that, or you can get denied parole, that kind of thing. Right. Was he eligible for parole at any time, or just flat 25? It's flat 25. Measure 11 is day for day. I see. So there is no earn good time or anything else on Measure 11 sentences. No programs, nothing. No incentive to do anything other than day for day of your time. But you didn't get 25 years. Is that because you were a juvenile? It was, but I was waived to adult court. So because I was 14 years old, I was ineligible for Measure 11 because you have to be at least 15 to be Measure 11 compliant. So the sentence that I was handed down was life in prison for a minimum of 30 years before being eligible for parole. That sentence is legally, it's the same thing as a life without parole sentence because they have to convert you from a life sentence to an eligibility for parole. That first opportunity for me based on the window of time in which I was convicted would be I would see the parole board after 25 years. And at some point in recent years, there's been court decisions that have come down to have courts take a second look at juvenile cases, especially recognizing that there's tremendous growth between the time you're a juvenile to the time that you're a mature adult and your brain has stopped developing. So just out of the necessity to avoid cruel and unusual punishment or exorbitant sentences for a crime committed as a child, courts take a second look at sentencings on a case-by-case basis and then reevaluate whether or not that person's rehabilitated, what their next opportunity or window of time where they could get a look at parole. Is that accurate? Yeah, and really those cases started to come in 05 where they banned the death penalty for individuals under the age of 18. Um, Prior to that, they were eligible um, from the age of 16 and up to be sentenced to death. Uh, depending on the state that in which you resided. So that was the first one. Then they said you cannot sentence youth under the age of 18 to mandatory life without parole. There has to be a meaningful opportunity for release at some point and somewhat ambiguous in terms of the meaningful opportunity. In Oregon, we have five true juvenile life without parolees um, that were under the age of 18 when they committed their crimes. Um, and most people don't know even who they are. And there's a difference between the de facto life without parole and someone who's serving true life without parole, meaning they have no opportunity to see a parole board at any point unless something changes. Uh, And then individuals who are receiving 50 and 60 and 70 year sentences as kids. And part of the meaningful component is that when you have an opportunity, when it's determined that you should be given an opportunity for release, that there's a meaningful life after the fact if you are indeed deemed appropriate for consideration for a second chance in the society. I did eight months in the first facility that I was at, and then they opened up a facility in my own county. So I transferred to my own county's detention facility. And I can remember crying on the way, leaving that facility for several reasons. And one of them being, I don't know what's going on. You know, I don't know what's next for me. I don't know what this new facility is like. And one of them also being that I had developed a rapport and relationships with the staff there at the first one that like, you know, 
now these people are gone from my life and there's a recognition on some levels that these are the choices that I made, but there's also the push away from that piece too. Sure. And what about your parents? How are they taking this? Are they, uh, we stand behind you or, oh my God, how did this happen? Who are you? Or They stood behind. Yes? Yeah. They maintained visitation every opportunity they had. Um, And when both my brother and I were transferred out of Southern Oregon to up in the Salem area, my mom actually moved to be closer to us. Did they stay married? They did not get married until my dad was on his deathbed. When you were 14 and you grew up quite in this isolated environment, that would seem to me it would lend itself to a profound loneliness. And though you had your brother, there's a hole inside that you're trying to fill with these peer groups that aren't serving you. They're sending you down a road that is not a good road and that lead you to this really horrific act. So I'm wondering if you think of yourself as having had an unhappy childhood. It's a mix. I mean, I... I I wasn't abused either sexually, physically. Um, I I was raised with good morals and values, like on the whole, like we ate dinner as a family. I certainly can reflect back to situations that were not the best examples. And I know that those played a role, but at the end of the day, I don't, I think partly based on my experience of being incarcerated and being around people who have had horrific upbringings and abuses of untold nature, that perspective gives me like a lot of appreciation for having not had to live through those kinds of experiences. So for example, and part of this is just shelteredness and part of it's just being exposed to different communities, but Like, I had no idea how common sexual abuse for girls and boys was growing up. And that has, I mean, that's a huge background for so many of people who become, you know, justice informed. And I didn't have that. I'm incredibly grateful for not having it. But it's also a piece of that perspective that says, you know, I didn't have it bad. I wasn't led down the wrong road. And that further informs kind of who I am today in terms of taking responsibility and recognizing that I have a debt that I can never repay. And it's, that's part of how I move forward. So I, I don't think of myself as having had an unhappy childhood, but I also very much recognize where pieces were missing or, you know what I mean, where things should have been different maybe. If you could say anything to your victim or his family, what would it be? Sorry is always the first thing that comes first and foremost to mind. It also, for me, is hard because it almost feels like a cop-out. And I don't... There aren't words that can express um, how sorry I am for what I've done. And... I don't expect them to think any differently than they have of me, but I, I will do everything in my power to make the right choices as I move through life and that I have a deep level of respect and appreciation for their perspective in every way that I can. Coming up in part two of Crime and Punishment, 
You know, the way I often reference our societal media view of incarceration is that it really doesn't represent the loneliness that exists in prison because it's a very solitary type of environment. Part of what I recognized early on in my incarceration was that if I didn't seek out opportunities to grow, to have responsibility, that I wouldn't mature at the normal rate. Because there's this saying, if you will, that says whatever age you go into prison is going to be the age that you get out. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.